It is truly a delight to be with you again and to open God's Word. This amazing letter of Paul to the church in Colossae. We're going to read today. We're going to look at the next paragraph of what Paul is going to to use to address the false teachers in, in very specific means and, and identity. Verses sixteen, chapter sorry, chapter two, verses sixteen to twenty-three. But we are only going to go through verses sixteen and seventeen today. So, if you have your Bibles, please delight with me and open God's Word to Colossians two. As we read 16 through 23, the word of the Lord says to us today, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Amen. You may be seated. John Piper says in his book called A Godward Life, Volume 2, that bad theology eventually will eventually hurt people and dishonor God in proportion to its badness. And in similar manner... J.C. Ryle, in his writings of warnings to the church, the churches, excuse me, he says divisions and separations are most objectionable in religion. They weaken the cause of true Christianity. But before we blame people for them, we must be careful that we lay the blame where it is deserved. False doctrine and heresy are even worse than schism. If people separate themselves from teaching that is positively false and unscriptural, they ought to be praised rather than reproved. In such cases, separation is a virtue and not a sin. While both of these insights, and there's many more that you could look up on bad theology and the impacts to the church, While these are true and and worth noting as as pertinent to the proper function and unity within the church, the body of Christ, it must also be said that for the truly saved Christian, the true believer, the purpose of knowing and growing in the knowledge of doctrine of Scripture is not an end unto itself. It is absolutely 
and unquestionably true that the gospel of the redemptive work and word of God, the, the redemptive doctrine of biblical truth, is the only means of, of true salvation, is the only means of truth and life through Christ, that is, as it is the power of God himself unto salvation. But its objective purpose is to transform the delights of the heart of man to be fully set upon God through the beloved Son, our only Lord and Savior. And to bring within the regenerated soul of the believer a true happiness of purity and intensity that brings us to God himself, that delights in and enjoys him in sweet communion. For in your presence, O Lord, is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. And it is when man attempts to modify, to add to, to create some kind of addendum to what is found in Scripture, or even demand the old to be brought back into the new, even within his own attempts to perform in such a way to garner God's acceptance and blessing, to do that which has already been accomplished in Christ, it's these attempts that damage not only his mindset, but his relationship with others. It per- perverts, it quenches the heart attitude toward the sufficiency of Christ found in these truths as they reveal the wonders and the glory and the face of Christ to the soul. And it's why Paul, in this letter, with such a pastoral heart, with with such revelatory insights of who Christ is, of all that he has done, and all that these believers now share in the fullness of Christ, that he now powerfully declares these dangerous aberrations and their practical outcomes, some of which were already occurring in the church or or would result for anyone being subjected to this type of false teaching. And note this, this is very important. These warnings apply in the same way today with the same power in the church today. Paul is, is, if you will, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, shining a light into our own lives and our own hearts. For the word to examine us, to see, to be aware of and war against and put to death what is still inherent in our remaining sin nature. So as we go through this next section, these two verses, and Lord willing, the rest of this chapter, I pray God's word and these messages will speak to you and will have its way in each of us, pastor included. But before we get into this, as I was going through this, I really want to kind of back up. You know, I like to back up and get big pictures here. I want to back up just for a moment and look at the whole book of Colossians real quick to give you kind of an outline, an overview of what Paul is doing in, the, in this work, what his flow is in, in presenting us the, the, the true, the, the supreme authority and fulfillment, the, the satisfaction in Christ. So really from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, there, there's one meaning here and theme in in the thanksgiving, in the prayer reports, in in the glorious hymn of Christ. This is all doctrinal. 
especially when he unpacked the sufficiency of the Son of God and providing for us this indicative foundation to, 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 to work from, to, to be the basis of our command, to our, our, our going forth that he's going to get into. From chapter 2, verse, verse 4, to the end of this chapter, we see his argument, his polemical address, really his, his, his feisty engagement with these opponents. And we're going to see this today. And he's presenting his case to the Colossians and really to all the churches in the Lycus Valley and to us that no one will deceive you or delude you. No one will lead you down that appealing path into deception. And he gives in this section very plausible arguments for us. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 6, we're going to get into the practical, the carrying out of the imperatives, where it's all applied, the doctrine, the polemics, all brought to bear in the lives of the believer individually and into the households and into the workplace because it carries through all realms of our life. And then chapter 4, verse 7 to the end is his final greetings, Paul's very sincere, gracious thanks for all their support and love and also some final instructions. But from our last time together, we saw God's power made manifest, his forgiving power, his power demonstrated through his working. This work, of course, is in reference to and through the death, the burial, the resurrection of his very son, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so as we look upon Christ, as he is nailed to the cross, and and we behold him being laid in the tomb, and as we behold his glorious resurrection, we see God's power at work. His working in and through his son, carrying out on our behalf the fullness of his promises fueled by his eternal power. But not only do we see his power demonstrated in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, but equally true and, and, and just as glorious we see God's working when he unites us to Christ in his death that we could not do. In his burial, in his resurrection, where we are born again to a living hope, where we experience, where we come to know the power of God's forgiveness in our lives through Christ by faith, free from sin's dominion, guilt, shame, death, Satan, and all this by a predetermined work of his Holy Spirit conceived in eternity past with your name written upon it. And then finally, and just as glorious, we saw God's power in public, public humiliation of all the spiritual rulers and authorities against demonstrated to the victory that was found on what they had hoped to be, the enemies thought would be the defeat of Christ, the end of, of God's plan. No, through the cross, they were all humiliated. Praise God. Now Paul He's already introduced us to the first of these four plausible arguments that we're going to go through. If you remember back in verse 8, we saw the first one where he says, as his introduction, as his foundation really of of what what we can consider humanism, uh, a human tradition, where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And now what Paul addresses in this next paragraph, what we read today, 
are his final three arguments. And in these arguments, we begin to see more aspects, more the nature of the false teaching. And in understanding more of its, its dangerous, syncretistic characteristics, this Judaism-paganism hybrid, if you will, we see in it the futility of man's efforts in the deception of his own heart and mind to find God in his own power, to know him by creating such a man-centered pursuit. So what we have before us today in verses 16 to 17 is fundamentally legalism. Okay? Verses 18 to 19, Lord willing, next week, is mysticism. Third argument, verses 20 to 23, is asceticism expounded upon. So today, like I said, just the first argument, legalism, verses 16 to 17. We hear a lot of this today, legalism, of or about the church in general as being too legalistic. Some wrongly consider legalism to be obedient to the Word of God, that a striving for holiness, that to be sanctified by the Word and the work of the Spirit is being legalistic. It's been described as the improper or the excessive use of God's law the Ten Commandments, the moral laws, etc. I've heard it said by one Reformed pastor that someone who is a legalist doesn't really understand what God's law is all about. But when you think of legalism, of the very forms, the different manifestations, what it looks like, what it, how it works, at the root of every form and instance of legalism is this premise— God's acceptance of me is based on my performance. God's acceptance of me is based on my performance. That Christ plus my works that I determine will gain acceptance and my approval. Not fruit-bearing works, not the work of the the fruit of faith within us, but a conformity to man-made or self-made rules or even the rules of the old covenant will measure spirituality, spiritual performance, and my acceptance with God. And at the very heart, the very core, is found this premise that my performance will aid in God's acceptance of me. This is always resident in the heart of the legalist. And it is the worldview and the default mode of the legalist. But it is even within the church. And when present, it quenches the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. What Paul's going to disclose in this paragraph is very important for us to recognize. Why? Why do we need to know about this today? It's the fundamental danger found in legalism that keeps people out of the kingdom of God. This should grab our attention. And we must learn to identify it and all its thought processes and its manifestations. It is this thinking that carries more people into the suffering of hell than any other sin combined. The premise that man's sin polluted performance before a holy God is sufficient to enter the residence of his glory. Think about this. Realize this. 
as we, we as believers, as we who profess faith in Christ, we will struggle with this until the Lord takes us home. Even those in Christ will war against this natural inclination of the heart. It's an automatic default mode of our deceptive heart that this self-performance mode we will gravitate to, we will yield to. So what Paul begins with, what we have here in verse 16, is very simple. It's a commandment. It's, it's an imperative. We, we need to listen and take it to heart. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge. And always, in order for us to understand the commandment, we need to understand important things. When we see a therefore, we're to do what? See what it's there for, right? We need to examine fully all the previous indicative that this is the basis on which Paul supports this command. And in this passage, we need to look at three things of this command under three headings. First, it's purpose. Purpose of Paul's command. The substance of his command. And the reasoning of his command. So first, the purpose. Found in that linking word, un, therefore, that what he is about to say reflects to what he has just said in verses 11 to 15. From the foundational, the transformative doctrine of our union with Christ, to be circumcised with Christ, pondering and the absolute reality and significance of this union legally, it is an indissoluble, eternal union with legal significance. Do we believe this? Do we trust in this? His death is my death. His burial is my burial. His resurrection life is now my resurrection life. This means that for us, that the fullness of his payment on my behalf for all my sin and his willing to endure under the crushing wrath of his father upon Calvary's cross, it is legally mine. If true, then now I am forgiven in Christ clothed with the righteousness of Christ. In Christ, I am one with him, and I am one, I am one with him virtually. And that means that the Holy Spirit now resides in me by virtue of his presence in me. The power of sin has been broken. The flesh, the old nature, and all that it was in Adam was crucified with Christ. It was buried. The penalty paid the power of sin broken, and I have been raised to a newness of resurrection of life in him. Verse 16, therefore, so beloved, if you understand this, if this is yours, then let no one pass judgment on you, because legally and virtually your relationship with Christ is transformative, and it alters your relationship to every other thing especially in Paul's thought, is now your relationship with the law and all of its aspects. So, come to the second point. Second is the substance. We saw the purpose. Now it's the substance of Paul's command. No one to act as your judge in, in questioning or demanding from you as a judge, setting distinct expectations and requirements in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. But what does all this have to do with us here today? Food to eat, what to drink, 
annual, monthly, weekly celebrations. All of this has to do with the law. But we need to look at this more specifically with regard to Moses and his receipt of the law and all its details through Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. I'm not going to go through all three books right now, I promise you. But this is important. For we know that in the Mosaic law, there are three kinds of law, correct? Moral laws. You shall not murder. That applies to everybody at all times. It brings a revelation of the character and the will of God. There are civil laws, governing laws, of the theocracy that was established by God as the head of the nation and people of Israel, and how the Israelites were to govern themselves as his nation under this theocracy. The only one in history. Now we are under a spiritual one with Christ and his kingdom. But this theocracy ended with the Davidic kings. And we might look to these civil laws to find wisdom and principles and truth in them. But we are no longer bound to them. Third, there are the ceremonial laws. Laws of religion, the feast, the Passover, the atonement. Seven annual feasts that the nation was commanded to celebrate before God. There was the tabernacle, the temple, the ark, the priesthood, all the washings, all of the dietary laws. All of these constitute ceremonial law. This is all encompassing of what Paul is talking about here. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you or with regard to food or drink in respect to a festival, new moon or Sabbath day. This is the content of Paul's command. And it's also seen in the expectations, the demands, the judgments by these false teachers in the influences of Judaism. So now we look at the third aspect, his reasoning behind this command. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, much like what we talked about in Sunday school. But the substance belongs to Christ, the Son of God. All of these things just mentioned in verse 16, all the observances of food, drinks, festivals, new moon, Sabbath day, these are all what? Shadow. Shadow of what is to come. And the substance, or a better way to identify substance, or the word soma used here is is the reality of Christ. Meaning that, that Christ and his new order, his new covenant, are the perfect reality to which all of these earlier ordinances were pointing to. We're giving evidence of coming. The shadow or the type of something is given to us for a purpose to show us in what may be a dim outline or an impression of what is to come. Think about the Old Covenant, all the ceremonial law, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the Holy of Holies, the table, lampstand, utensils, incense, animals, all that blood, all the regulations of what you could or could not eat, what you could or could not touch, these were all part of the shadow. Every shadow has a body, and the shadow of the old covenant had a body. It had a reality, and that was none other than Christ himself. All of this now being fulfilled, being satisfied, being obeyed fully in the person and substance of Christ. But what Paul's logic is here, it's very simple, but extremely profound. But we need to listen to it and follow it. If you want to know Christ, you need to look to Christ. 
Because for them and for us, those in Christ, Christ has now been revealed to us in his fullness and in his reality. And for anyone to go back to bring those ordinances of the Old Testament, they're doing what? They're basically stepping back into the shadow. They're going back to the old ways and what was only intended to bring an impression, an outline of what was to come. So what was happening or starting to happen in Colossae was something like, These false teachers are telling the folks in the church, you really shouldn't be eating that, but you ought to consider this. And and rather than drinking that, you might want to drink this. You shouldn't be washing your hands that way. You know, you need to make sure you you do it in certain motion and and order. And you really need to make sure you observe these feasts and and these celebrations and these religious festivals. But Paul's command is revealing this. They're, they're only living in the temporary, the shadow of what's already gone because the substance has come. So we saw the reason for his command. We look back at the therefore of what Christ has done in verses 11 to 15. The content focusing on the ceremonial law rather than looking to Christ. And the logic because this very plausible sounding argument, this appeal will come and has come and presents itself to believers. And what these false teachers or any false teacher will promote is something like, you're saved? Oh, praise God, so am I. You believe in Christ? Oh, I do too. Oh, have you heard that to really experience the the fullness, the, the complete joy, the greater spirituality of Christ, you need to do this to really get closer to God? But they all carry with them these pious deceptions. Paul's command, let no one pass judgment on you. You already belong to the substance in and of Christ. The reality has come. We are called to live in this, to abide in this, to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit as he reveals the Son of God to us. And we see the same argument that Christ had with the spiritual leaders in Israel of his day. Matthew 23, where Christ was rebuking the Pharisees for their neglect of the weightier provisions of the law, those toward men in justice and mercy, but at an utmost critical nature in its weight, its its tutoring purpose was to point to him, to a life of self-denial and repentance and faith in God. These are the good things the Lord requires of us, and this is only found in the reality of what all the shadows were pointing to. So Paul is effectively laying down the principle of Christian liberty. No one is to act as your judge. However, what he wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 14 and and in Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, Paul there was dealing with believers, with Christians who had scruples about some very same issues of food and drink, observances of holy days. But in these discourses in Romans and Corinthians, Paul introduces a further principle to the believers which might impose a voluntary limitation on their Christian liberty. He basically said, the strong in faith should not go out of their way, should go, excuse me, the strong in faith should go out of their way to avoid offending the tender consciences of the weak or the scrupulous. But in Colossae, in this passage, Paul is warning against the scrupulous who were threatening to impose their rigid principles on the rest of the believing congregation. 
deceiving them. And in this case, the Christian's liberty now realized in the fullness of Christ needed to be asserted in the light of these false attempts to undermine it. So Paul knows very well that these believers will be susceptible to this deceitful and yet a very fine-sounding argument, and sometimes so are we. Let me give you two viable reasons. One, there are still professing believers even today that struggle to understand our relationship to ceremonial laws and their observances. Many believers still celebrate the Passover. I know several. know families that still do this, that, that even turn to the Old Testament strictly for regulating all of their food and drink. Some wanting to return to Saturday Institutes of the Sabbath, which are in the Old Testament. But in all cases, for whatever reason, bad theology or ignorance in their thinking, they fail to, to grasp that the shadow is gone. The fulfillment of these things have happened. And I promised Pastor Amelia I would not bring a Sabbatarian message. This is not going to happen here, so <laughs> no worries there. All of that has been replaced. All has been removed because the reality of the person in the shadow of Christ has arrived. Second, and even more common, some of us struggle to understand with what it means to be in Christ, to be complete in him. And it's, it's in this struggle of this reality that we're susceptible to the voice that still says, in some way or some form, somehow God's acceptance of me still depends on my performance. Because that nagging voice still lingers, those whispers of doubt, there's still the susceptibility of this argument or to this argument. That, that lingering question of being really saved and really knowing and be really sanctified to be really holy, here's what you must do. But in reality, this is the spirit of legalism. Where does this spirit come from? Where does this spirit of legalism come from? I think we need to look at this in, in some detail because it's going to help us identify how it works, how it manifests itself. And there's four questions, four inquiries we need to look at. Where does it originate from? What's the source first? Well, obviously, the root is pride. Pride is at the root, and and this root has off of it two branches, if you will, two shoots. And one of these branches arises from that notion that my performance pleases God. I'm not talking about obedience. I'm talking about my performance that I determine I need to do to get God's acceptance. God surely must find pleasure in me because of all that I do. I'm at church every Sunday. He must be pleased at how much money I give. God must be pleased I'm so very busy and active in the church. Thankfully, I'm not like that guy over there. And pride allows us to see ourselves as better than another. This is the spirit of legalism where where my performance in and of itself, pleases God. The second branch arises from this root of pride that my performance influences God. The the deceptive default mode of the human heart is its desire to seek and to control God through our performance. What I mean is, is this is the result of the fall. If left to ourselves, this is our automatic mode. This is a mode we slip into when in seeking to somehow control God by what we do. What do you mean? How does this work? If I do this, God must do this. 
right? If, if, I, if I perform this way, won't, won't God do this? Remember Paul's declaration concerning all of this, that nothing good dwells within me, nothing in my flesh, that nothing I can do, there is to do to influence or please God through my behavior. We're all susceptible to this if we fail to grip, to, to grip this reality, that there's no way that I can influence God through my behavior to do one thing or the other. Second is, how does this legalism manifest itself? How does it build? I think there's, there's four ways here. First, and I'm looking strictly at the legalist, he begins by rejecting the doctrine of total depravity. Not necessarily in confession, but he rejects it in practice. He or she may subscribe to this doctrine that man is basically depraved, but they will reject it in practice in their lives that our depravity doesn't extend to everything that we do about our being. Second aspect of this, how it manifests itself, is that the legalist will reduce sin to just mere actions rather than the innate condition of the heart. Rather than seeing that the heart is the source for all that Jesus describes in Matthew fifteen nineteen as sin, and even though sins are actions, they originate from the heart, coming from our impulses, our desires, our motivations of our deceitful nature. Building upon this, now the legalist begins to create a list of, of, of markers, of do's and don'ts, spiritual performance metrics. I'm not going to copyright that, but that's basically, these are my spiritual goals. If I achieve these, I'm going to get there. But the final construction of the legalist, fourth point, is then to adhere to this list of these, these metrics, these markers that he or she has established. And this now constitutes obedience for the legalist and in his mind leads to salvation. Note, this is what the unbeliever does. And the key to these markers is that they are the means of salvation for the legalist. They become for them a distinguishing factor as to why they are saved. I've achieved this. I've done this. I'm here every week. I've played this. I do so much more than that person over there. I've made it. But think about this. How many of us are still susceptible to this thinking? Not, not as it applies to salvation, but as it applies to God's blessing in, in earning his pleasure in me, of influencing God in such a way that he will bless me. That somehow, if I can perform well in achieving these performance metrics, that this will please God and result in his blessing me. Martin Luther said it's very hard for a man to believe that God is gracious to him. The human heart can't grasp this. It's a struggle that requires the transforming, renewing work of the mind and the heart by the word of God. Where do we see the spirit of legalism? Very clearly manifested. Luke 18, the publican and the Pharisee. Christ designed this parable and leveled it directly at the ones who trusted in all of their outward public performances of their own self-perceived righteousness and demonstrations of their own self-piety, of their cleaning the outside of the cup 
this approach to show themselves as saved, as righteous, and even in this pompous prayer, thanking God that he's not like somebody else. Now be careful before we look down at this Pharisee, for the same legalism will rear its ugly head in our lives and in the church. What about it in our ethics in the church? Some folks may say or think or believe, I'm so glad I'm not like him. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't dance. God is really going to bless me because of that. Even in ministry, I'm busy, I'm studying all the time, I'm ministering to people, I'm up so late, I don't get any sleep, I'm just in doing this and doing that. I'm so busy, God is going to bless me because of this. Even in our doctrinal pursuits and understanding biblical doctrine, if I'm growing in understanding and theology, I really don't understand it why some people don't get what I get, but that's okay. I wish they knew what I knew, and I can win any arguments without even breaking a sweat. I'm a bastion of orthodoxy. God is going to bless me because of this. Each of those is a legalist spirit. Each of those has a spirit of legalism at work. And as I said, it's a default position, even within Christians, that we think my behavior, my performance, that what I do or don't do is the deal breaker. That somehow this is going to get God's attention and going to ingratiate me to God and do to this, and in some way, God is going to bless me and favor me. This will only set him or her, he or she, up for a very hard fall. It is all me-centered. It's all performance-based. Just keep doing. Just keep performing. God will make it all go well. He will bless me. He will prosper me. He will give me a good marriage. He will save my children. That's the heart cry of the legalist who assumes that our relationship with God has to do with our performance. However, our only means of a true relationship with God has everything to do with Jesus Christ. God's acceptance of me, the only means by which God accepts any repentant sinner into his family is only because the Lord Jesus Christ wonderfully, perfectly obeyed his Father unto death. The Son of God performed perfectly so that we may be accepted. How liberating is this for any believer to be empowered and propelled by God's grace through Christ and his perfect performance for us. Back to our inquiries. We're only at number two. Number three. Why is this spirit of legalism so dangerous? There's several reasons here. First one, it distracts us. It distracts us from the very things that, that, that really enslave us. Even in the church setting that focus on what is called, I've heard some call it the big five. Don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke, don't gamble, don't watch movies. It distracts away from heart sins. It never addresses or preaches on anything but just what touches on the corners of the heart. Only external issues, only observations and issues that have to do with the do's and the don'ts. That somehow with this mental concept of its external behavior, as long as you conform to an external list, you are alive, you're behaving correctly, and if you meet these, you're a believer, and God will bless you. It's also dangerous because it flatters. Legalism doesn't look like sin. 
murder, we can identify pretty clearly. Jealous rage, we can identify that. We can see that. But legalism doesn't look like a sin. A legalist feels very comfortable in church because it's flattering. It's a selfish behavior based on performance and comparison. And it doesn't look like a sin. It's dangerous because it deceives. It is so very subtle, so very deceptive. It gives the appearance of spiritual life. For individuals, I have arrived because I've completed my to-do list, and I don't do what they do. You may even know of churches that, that even through the Spirit of God, that though the Spirit of God is left, they continue to go on and on and on with enough rules enough regulations in place that give a deceptive perception of life and when actually life has gone. Finally, it's dangerous because it destroys. It's like a venom from the asp. It paralyzes the function in the body of Christ. It fractures the joy of fellowship and friendship. And it deadens our hearts to a shell. How do we resist this? How do we war against this? How do we mortify this automatic pilot mode of our deceptive hearts? Verse 16, therefore, only by living and delighting and knowing Christ as he is described and displayed and disclosed and manifested in verses 11 to 15 and throughout the rest of scripture, by thriving and truly living, by being one with Christ and finding our enjoyment, our delight in fellowship with God, who Christ has what brought us to, by being forgiven by God, free from the dominion of sin in our life, free from all that had formerly imprisoned us, and virtually by all that we are in union with Christ. Remember, apart from Him, we are Nothing. We can do nothing. And that we offer nothing. We bring nothing except our sin. We have nothing on the table. We have nothing good in our flesh. Where our hope is not in us, it is in another. God doesn't accept me because I obey. He accepts me because Christ perfectly obeyed. Christ lived the life I was required to live. Christ obeyed the laws I was required to obey. Christ suffered in ways I could not. Christ was tempted in every way. We are, but without sin. Christ died the death that I was required to die, and in Christ was raised again in glorious satisfaction. And it is by grace through faith in Christ that God is now satisfied with me. He looks upon me as he looks upon his son. I don't have to prove myself or perform to gain acceptance by God. God is pleased with me and rejoices over me and is satisfied with me because he is first and foremost pleased when rejoices over his son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Just thinking on this, meditating on this, and looking at the parable of the two sons, 
Much like the older brother rejecting and rebelling against his father, he did good things, he stayed at home, he conforms, but his heart was exposed and his true colors were revealed when his younger brother returns and his father lavishes his love and reception upon him. And he resents that the father is lavishing his inheritance on his younger brother. I stayed home and conformed. I met your list. Now you owe me, is what he's saying. It revealed what he is, a raving legalist who is completely performance-based and wants to get what he believes he has coming from his father because he has conformed. Both brothers rebelled. Both rejected their father. Both needed repentance. But we know the hedonist is easy to identify in the younger brother. However, the legalist is very hard to spot in the church. So I ask you, is the heart of the legalist present? Do you, do I, do we depend on our performance? Do we have expectations that God will favor and bless you or owe you because you've met some performance criteria or guidelines either derived from the law or our own determination? If so, you need the grace of God found in Christ. God does not accept us because we obey. God only accepts us because Christ himself obeyed, and he did so on our behalf. That we, by his grace, through faith in him, may be brought into full, his full, fullness of obedience, the fullness of his death, and the fullness of his burial and resurrection, and now experience the life of God, fellowship with God, communion with God in and through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, how wonderful is your name and how magnificent is your work. How glorious and how liberating it is for the heart of your children to know the liberty and the freedom of our acceptance through and by and in your beloved Son. Father, I pray this reality would just fill us to the brim, Lord, to overflowing, to know this is our fullness in Christ, to know this is our completeness in Him, that we share in this, we abound in this, Because you did it, Father. You conceived the plan. You set it forth. The Son lovingly and willingly obeyed and fully finished the work that we could not do. How marvelous, how wonderful are you, O Lord. And Spirit of God, thank you for bringing this to reality in dark sin-infested, spiritually dead enemies of you. Oh, Spirit, do, do your work in us. Examine us. Let us understand and grow in the knowledge of Christ and all that it means, Father, to delight in you through him. 
Lord, give us eyes, open our eyes to truly behold the wondrous things of your word as they reveal your son to us. That we would know and experience in our hearts, in our lives, in the midst of trials, in the midst of painful surgeries, in the greatest joys we can imagine, whether in abundance or poverty, Father, to know our acceptance by you is through you and from you and to you in Christ himself. Thank you, Father. Oh, Lord, mortify any spirit of legalism in our hearts. May we not quench the Holy Spirit, but in love, joyously obey your glorious commands, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.